Jesus Christ took it upon Himself to pay the penalty for sin on the cross. Your mercy, Your grace, Your compassion, so much more. We thank You and we praise You this day. We ask that You would open our hearts and our minds as we look into Your Word, as we discover the things that You have for us written so many years ago and yet applicable today. We thank You, we praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. So many of you will remember that in 2014, Warner Brothers released a film entitled The Lego Movie. Anybody? And I apologize in advance. You know, the thing uh, earned over half a billion dollars at the box office. Isn't that something? So, and, and I apologize in advance because I'm probably going to introduce to you one of those songs that you just might be thinking all the way through the sermon. Oh, well, everything is awesome. (laughs) You know, the writers of that song, while you may not know it, certainly the children wouldn't know it, uh, deliberately used a heavy dose of sarcasm because they knew that everything is not awesome. Every, you know, if everything was awesome, why then nothing would be awesome. People who use words as a living, they beg executives and people in public, do not use the word awesome. It turns out awesome is the number one overused word in the English language. However, today I'm going to tell you who is awesome And I'm going to tell you six awesome things that he is going to do. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9 for this first point, Daniel 9, 4, where the text says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. If you run your finger down the page just a little bit, you'll come to verse 24 and you're going to find six awesome things that our awesome God is going to do. First, He is going to finish the transgression. Second, He's going to put an end to sin. Third, He's going to atone for iniquity. Fourth, He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Fifth, He's going to seal both vision and profit. And finally, He's going to anoint a most holy place. Not only that, not only is He going to do those six things, He has actually given us a timetable for those events. Now, don't get nervous. (laughs) No one knows the day or the hour, and no one here is going to set any dates. But there are some things that we do know. And if you didn't know, today, this morning, we're going to discover that we do know when, to the day, the prophetic clock 
started. We do know when the prophetic clock paused. We do not know when it will restart. That is the mystery. But we do know that once it restarts, there will be a period of seven years where God will execute judgment upon the earth. Now, today's message here in Daniel 9 is critical to understanding the plan of God. Why? Put simply, Daniel 9 reveals the plan of God for Israel, the people of Israel. John Walvoord, who was still president at Dallas Theological Seminary for five of the six years I attended, wrote in his work on Daniel these words. Because of the comprehensive and structural nature of Daniel's prophecies, both for the Gentiles and for Israel, the study of Daniel, and especially this chapter, is the key to understanding the prophetic scriptures. In fact, he entitled his work, Daniel, the Key to Prophetic Revelation. He wrote this about Daniel chapter 9. Unless the ninth chapter of Daniel is adequately understood, the great prophetic discourse of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 and 25, in Mark 13 and Luke 21, and the greater portion of the book of Revelation will be misunderstood. In other words, Daniel 9 is the key that opens the storeroom that holds the other keys. But before we can turn the key, we need to look at Jeremiah. Now, we've all heard that Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And, and I mean, and why not? Who wouldn't weep at the loss of their city? Who wouldn't weep at having been beat to within an inch of their life? Who wouldn't weep at having been put in a cistern with a muddy bottom so that you could starve to death so that the people put you in there said, we didn't kill him. <laughs> he starved to death. You know, God, you could have brought a raven. Who wouldn't weep? And who wouldn't weep if you were at the end of your life, in the end of your days, hauled off against your will to another country? In this case, in his case, Egypt, to die there in an unmarked grave, alone, unmourned, and unwept at the loss. But those who know Jeremiah know that this moniker, the weeping prophet, is not accurate. Those who know, know that he was the persevering prophet. Those who know, know that he does not deserve our sympathy. Well, he may deserve it, but that's not what we should give him. We should give him our respect. You know, his prophecies extended across five kings over 40 years. Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. And like Isaiah, he wrote about Israel being taken captive. Not only that, he actually tells us for how long. Now, so these are the things that Jeremiah told us. And we know something about Daniel as well. We know that Daniel was among 
the ruling class of Israel. And so even though he was a young man, he was a part of a class that was taken from Israel into captivity, into exile with Babylon. And as such, it is not outside of our imagination to believe that Daniel, as a young boy, heard Jeremiah thundering his prophecies. Yeah, they occupied the same, they were alive in the same time period. Jeremiah was older, of course, but nevertheless, it's not impossible to think that. There's something else that we know from the text here, and we'll look at some of the text. We won't take the time to read the entire chapter, but I will go through the text so that we won't lose track of where we're at. We know precisely what Daniel was reading for his evening, for his evening prayers on this day. He was reading Jeremiah. Now, right now you'll think, okay, he was reading Jeremiah. But you need to know a little bit more about Jeremiah in order to understand why that was unusual. We know he was reading Jeremiah 25 and 29. Now, obviously, there were no chapters and verses in those days, but that's where he had the scrolls open to. And then that night he received a vision from Gabriel himself. Daniel wrote in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So if you know that text in Jeremiah, you understand that's the text where Jeremiah is talking about the thoughts that God has towards Israel. Thoughts not to destroy, but thoughts to, to build up. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, but of future, of hope. This is what Daniel was pondering. And we know that because that's what he told us. Now, Daniel believed in the literal fulfillment of these years. Seventy years meant seventy years. It didn't mean the time of completion. It didn't mean these other things. It meant, I mean, it may have meant those other things that you could apply to it, but he literally took it as seventy years. And this is instructive to us. They were not symbolic years. They were not metaphors. Daniel believed this was happening now. You understand that Daniel had been there already for 68 years. 68 years he had been in exile and he's reading these words from Jeremiah and he learns, he discovers there's only two years remaining before the Jews would be able to go back to Jerusalem. It is time to celebrate. Two years. You can do two years. How hard is that? Psalm 137 reads, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. 
On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us the songs of Zion. Their response was, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? No longer true. Daniel, get the lyres out of the willows. Start singing. Send out messages to your brothers and sisters. We're going home. If you've read the text, nothing remotely like that happens. What would you do if you'd been in captivity? You'd been in jail. You'd been imprisoned for something that you did not do. And you discovered that your sentence had been commuted and you were going home. Cause a celebration. It's not what happened. Why? I mean, didn't Israel already know this? Why wasn't Israel preparing? We find from Ezra, we find from uh, Nehemiah that Israel was in no way ready for this, in no way prepared. Why weren't they beginning their celebrations? I mean, after all, the Lord had revealed to them through Jeremiah that it would be 70 years. And we know it was 70 years. Chronicles, Second Chronicles tells us exactly why. It was because for 490 years... The Israelites had not followed the Sabbath year. So that would be 70 years. They had failed to keep it. Leviticus 25 tells us that for six years, you're going to plant, you're going to grow, you're going to save, you're going to store. But in the seventh year, you let it all lay fallow. You don't do anything with it. Well, from the time of David to the exile, they never kept the Sabbath year not once. Now, here's why I think they weren't really celebrating right now over in Israel. In 40 years of ministry, how many disciples, believers, how many hearts did Jeremiah win? Two. Forty years of ministry. He was hated. He was reviled. He was despised. He had two converts. And that's it. Read it. He only had two. I don't think Israel believed that he was a prophet. Or at least one they wanted to listen to. One they wanted to read. I think God preserved Jeremiah's works because of Daniel. Daniel had them. How he got them, I don't know. Somehow he got them and he was reading them. And as he was reading, he understood something. And we see, we see this through a large part of this text. But it was that Jeremiah revealed that there was a condition there was a condition for God to restore the people to the land. And what was that? It was for His people to pray to Him wholeheartedly. It was for His people to repent. 
It was for his people to understand why they went into exile in the first place. They blamed their political leaders. They blamed their geography. They blamed whatever it is that they blamed, but they never blamed themselves. They never repented for this. And Daniel, who knew this and understood this, a natural-born leader, took it upon himself to pray the prayer for Israel's sake. And you have a prayer from verse 3 to verse 19 that is staggering in its comprehensiveness, in its depth, in its understanding. It's, it's in one of the deepest prayers you will ever read or have ever heard. And Daniel did not regard prayer as unnecessary. He regarded it as a requirement for the prophecy's fulfillment. And so he prays for the nation. He prays a prayer of confession. He turned his face to God. He, seek, he sought after God with prayer. And he begged for mercy. He begged with fasting and sackcloth and in ashes. And remember, I mentioned just a few minutes ago that Daniel was a part of the ruling class, both in Israel and in Babylon. For him to don sackcloth must not escape you. Uh, this is not dissimilar to Nehemiah's fear of facing the king with a frown. Because, you know, in Babylon, everything is awesome. If one of the ruling class fails to just be as bright as the sun, he's in danger of being put to death. Now, why? Why was he in sackcloth? Oh, by the way, there aren't many words that we get into our English language from Hebrew. Did you know that? How many, how many Hebrew words have... Man, there's lots of German words, lots of French words, lots of Old English words, and so forth and so on. But Hebrew, not too many. One of them is sack. You know, like a grocery bag, like a sack. You know what the Hebrew word for sack is? Sack. You know what it means? Sack. It means it's a bag. So they figure this sackcloth was this harshly woven, roughly woven, itchy wool. I mean, think about it with a couple of holes, you know, for your arms and one for your head and you put this thing on. This was not a comfortable thing. It was worn during times of mourning. It was worn during times of distress. It was worn as a sign of repentance. And he put this on and in verses 5 and 6 he stresses God's loyal love. He calls upon God's hesed to Israel in contrast to Israel's unfaithfulness to him. I invite you to read, read the full prayer uh, as you're able to. Would his prayer be enough? Would the Lord listen to him as a representative of the nation of Israel? What was Daniel's great fear here? What was it as soon as he discovered there's two years left, he puts on sackcloth and ashes? 
The great fear that he had, what drove him to that, put simply, this may sound strange initially, is he, he knew that God always keeps his word. You know what Israel should have been doing when the exile came? They should have been rejoicing. Thank you, God. Why would they do that? Because God always keeps his word. In fact, God told them he was going to do that. In Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, he tells them precisely that. Daniel was deeply pondering what the last 68 years were about and how God had poured out curses on his people because of the sins that were in keeping with Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. Even Moses warned the Israelites, stay with God, do not depart from God, or he's going to take you out of the land. Yet Jerusalem had not sought his favor through repentance. And so this calamity, this curse fell upon them. Why? Because God is Righteous. God keeps His words. Every deed of the Lord our God is righteous. The, keys, the key to Daniel's deep concern and distress here was this. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And why is that? I'll tell you. It's because the long-term success of the children of Israel was entirely dependent upon their obedience to God. And when they sinned, and when they failed to obey the law, Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 says, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, the crops are going to fail. I'm going to send a plague. We're going we're gonna to have you to get into some wars. It's going to get worse, 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 until finally I'm going to take you out of the land. Now, I want you to observe something very carefully. And that is what we find is, is that if you do not learn your lesson, in other words, if I bring these upon you and you do not learn your lesson and you do not repent and you do not return to me, I will visit you sevenfold. In fact, he says that four times in that passage in Leviticus 26, sevenfold. But they did not obey. I mean, they hadn't obeyed really from the beginning. They were idolaters and all the way up to Babylon, they had failed to obey God completely. In the 10th century B.C., they split off. Israel was, the northern kingdom was hauled off by Assyria and then finally Judah and Jerusalem to Babylon. And the question that was occupying Daniel's mind is, what will God do if the people don't repent? I mean, the entire tenor of Daniel's prayer is that Israel had not repented. What is God going to do? Let me read out of Leviticus 26 so you don't just have to take my summary for it. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all of my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. 
I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, with fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee where, when none pursues you. And in spite of this, and now this is, brings us up to what Daniel's concern is. In spite of this, in other words, these calamities have come upon you. In spite of this, you still do not repent. You will not listen to me. Then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power. And I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its increase. Four times he says this to them. Daniel looked around. Israel had not repented. What Daniel knew was that if Israel did not repent, the Lord was going to visit them with a curse for 70 times 7. 490 years. Verses 18 and 19, Daniel repeatedly appealed to God to hear and answer his prayer, not because the Israelites deserved it. He knew this but because of God's mercy and compassion. And then in 20 and 21, God responds and Daniel sees the angel Gabriel. So here we come to the key. In the final four verses, one of the most important prophecies in all of the Old Testament is revealed to us. The prophecy is presented in verse 24. It's followed by... 69 sevens, and that's described in verse 25. And then the 69th week is described, uh, and the 70th week are detailed in verse 26. And the 70th, I'm sorry, the, the, the 67th in 26, and the 70th week in verse 27. I'm sorry, the 70th seven. See, I'm getting mixed up on my numbers. You've got to, so, because they're actually years is what he's talking about here. And that's, the Hebrew word is translated, uh, weeks is, is, is sabuim, which means sevens. And it's clear he's talking about years. It could mean uh, days. I mean, that's grammatically possible as it was in Genesis 29. But the context in Leviticus 25 makes it very clear that he's talking about Years here, and Daniel had been thinking about God's program for Israel. We know that in verses 1 and 2, he said it was 70 years. And you end up with one of this, uh, the first uh, seven sevens, uh, and that would be for uh, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And you can't, I don't think it's reasonable to think that you could rebuild Jerusalem in 49 uh, days. Uh, that would be a, a challenge. Even though Nehemiah did get the walls up in, what was it, 52 days? But walls are not a city. Strikingly, what Daniel is told first is that you're greatly loved. Daniel, that was a magnificent and worthy try. 
not any good though. Not for what's going to happen here. Seventy-seven year periods total 490 years. Your people and your holy city are clear and obvious references to the Jews and to Jerusalem. However, the following verses tell us that they're not going to be uninterrupted. And uh, this is a great comfort to us, especially in view of our present circumstances, is that God has decreed these years. He has ordained them, and they are as certain to come to pass as all that God has ever ordained. So now we come to the purpose of God's decree. I mentioned them up at the beginning. First, to finish the transgression. In other words, it's going to end rebellion against Him. Second, to put an end to sin. It will end human failure to obey uh, God. Third, to atone for iniquity. It's going to provide for atonement that will cover human sin. Fourth, it's going to bring about everlasting righteousness. It's going to inaugurate a new righteous society. Fifth, it's going to seal both vision and profit. In other words, it's going to bring to fulfillment all that God has spoken. And fifth, or sixth, to anoint a most holy place. It's going to result in the temple being built. By the time these 490 years run their course, God will have completed these six things for Israel. Now, there are many in Christianity who say that's already been done. How many of you think that you live in a righteous society? The world is covered with righteousness and justice. And that... All the people are in obedience to God. I hope none of you do. Because that would be a delusion. We live in a fallen and a broken and a sick world where Jesus Christ is the only answer. Verse 25 tells us that the clock is going to begin with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. That decree was issued by Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. And while there were four decrees total issued regarding Jerusalem, two were regarding the rebuilding of the temple, a third was regarding the establishment of animal sacrifice in the temple, and it was the fourth that gives the Jews permission to rebuild. So we need to look at the numbers just a little bit closer. Seven sevens plus 62 sevens, that's 483 years. Gabriel told Daniel that after 483 years, an anointed one would be cut off. That would be the Messiah. Sir Robert Anderson, the assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard, who also headed the Jack the Ripper investigation. He was a devout believer. He went into great detail showing that from 444 B.C., when you add those 483 years, you come to the day that Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem, what we know of as the triumphal entry. 
While some disagree with that, some make it the crucifixion. We're arguing days. We're not arguing years. The disagreement is over ticks of the clock. So what about the first break? I mean, it probably took that long. It was seven sevens, 49 years. It probably took that long to rebuild Jerusalem. But I'll tell you what I find more intriguing than that. I mean, that's important, right? The rebuilding of Jerusalem is important. But listen, what I find more intriguing is that all Israel's prophets had finished what they had to say by the end of that 49 years. Malachi had done and was finished. And we enter into the 400 what are called silent years, the intertestamental intertestamental period. Those are part of that judgment of God. He withheld His voice from them. No more prophets. Now in 26 and 27, the prince who was to come during the 70th week is not the Messiah. Remember, the anointed one was cut off. This person comes in and he destroys the city and he brings about what's called the abomination of desolation. Now a preview of what happened there was in 70 AD when the Roman army under uh, Titus, they leveled Jerusalem. The prince who will come, however, is not Titus. Some people put this in history, that's fine. But they can search in vain for Titus making any kind of a covenant with Israel for three and a half years. didn't happen. But a future ruler, namely the Antichrist, will. The ruler of what is commonly known as the revived or reorganized Roman Empire, the little horn of chapter 7, the Antichrist of Revelation. And this means that the 70th week cannot immediately follow the 69th week when Messiah is cut off. And so this is where the Apostle Paul talks about the mysterion, the mystery of the church. This was not revealed, and yet it was revealed to, to Paul and to us through him and other writers of Scripture that there is this pause so that the Gentiles in the fullness of our number as Gentiles, might come in to the church before this last seven years begins. And then you have the Antichrist who will come in. He will terminate the sacrifices and offerings. And all of that we're going to talk about as we continue through the book of Revelation. But understand that the foundation and the understanding of it is discovered in Daniel Chapter 9. So, the content has carried most of this message. Um, I've put very little application in, other than I hope it develops for you a great confidence for our great and awesome God. But for now, I think I'd like for you to think about three things. First, Daniel knew that effective prayer came from understanding and believing the Word of God. And he prayed for the nation and he included himself. You know, there is not a single recorded sin in Daniel's life. doesn't mean he was sinless. I'm not saying that. But here was a man who put himself at the base of Israel's sin before God. He understood, I think, that 
we need to consider that as well. Second, Jesus said this, Your Father knows you that have need of things before you ask Him. Daniel's prayer was delayed a little bit. When we have delays in the prayers that we have, there is a reason. It is part of God's plan. It is a delay to us, not to God. The answer arrives perfectly when it should. And finally, Jesus said to the Jews of His day, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that would make for your peace. In Luke 19, today is the day of salvation. Everything is not awesome. Not in our nation, not in the world. But there is one who is. And He has done great things. Father, we thank You. We thank You that You give us life, that You give us love, that You have Your Word spread before us, that we might be able to read it, that we might be able to learn from it, that we might be able to use it as the foundation for our thinking, for our behavior, for our prayers. And it's never more important than it is now that believers live a believer's life. Strengthen and encourage us to be able to do so through Christ our Lord. Amen.